iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Manchester City turned the Premier League title race into a procession. What next for Everton after the sacking of Rafa Benitez? We'll talk about postponements in the Premier League. Do we need more transparency? And we catch up with an old friend in the shape of our very own Matt Dickinson. This is The Game. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and the lesser spotted Matt Dickinson. Matt, how are you? I'm great, Hugh. It's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm still the same person. Still got no hair. Still talking nonsense. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, glad to uh, be uh, on my return. Uh, we will come to what you've been up to uh, a little bit later on in the podcast, including playing Dickinson's Diaries uh, of the World of Football. But first, let's deal with what happened this weekend. We'll start at the top of the table. We'll move to the bottom to discuss uh, Everton, Norwich, Newcastle and more. But Manchester City end the weekend 11 points clear at the top of the Premier League from Liverpool, by the way, who do have a game in hand. But it was another confident performance and win from City over Chelsea at the top of the table. Kevin De Bruyne with a stunning curling winner. That's the difference in a match in which City really could have scored more. Maybe Chelsea could as well, though. I've got to ask, was this the day that the title was won? Because they don't play Liverpool until the second week in April. There are only six games left after that. What do you think, Alison? Never has the phrase game in hand meant so little to so many people. <laughs> it's normally when you've got a game in hand, you get quite excited about a game in hand, don't you? Game in hand could be anything to anybody. Could mean so much. It doesn't feel like it means very much at the moment. Um, the very nice piece by Paul Hurst in the Times this morning saying when City take the lead, it's time to go home. They're so metronomic and it's hard to see where they're going to f- stumble, fall down. Um, I, I think Liverpool could play amazingly well and cope with the absence of Salah and Mane beautifully from now on and it won't make a difference because I don't see what can happen to City. So they were predictably good and the interesting bit from that game was Chelsea and I think it's been slightly underplayed how Tuchel spoke afterwards. He seemed to be reigniting this sort of internal spat with Romelu Lukaku. I mean, the ultimate irony at the start of the season was everybody was saying uh, Chelsea could win the title because they've got this amazing almost £100 million centre forward in the ever-improving Lukaku and Manchester City failed to get Harry Kane and you've got the two teams up against each other and having Lukaku seems to be not helping Chelsea. It doesn't seem to be, seems to be something that they're having to accommodate rather than take them to another level. So that was peculiar, whereas City don't look like they've got many problems at all. And of course, are 
we always forget how good they are defensively. Manchester City, just very difficult to break down. So if Liverpool were playing City, I don't know, end of Feb, there might be some tension. But as you say, Hugh, that game, it could mean nothing by the time they actually face each other. Um, we'll come to Romelu Lukaku in more detail in a moment. Just on City, Tom, do you see any way back for anyone else? You know, they might be distracted by other competitions. Give me something. Well, I'm going to have to, aren't I, Hugh? Because mm. I've said they're going to crack up at some point. So I'm going <laughs> to, as I've said... Where, yeah, though? Where will they crack? I don't know. I think I'm just doing it just to try and drum up some excitement in the title <laughs> race that is long since over. But I... I'm sure listeners are also waiting for our producer, John, to clip up those moments when I said City would crack. Maybe he's waiting for win number 20 in the streak. I don't know. Who mm. knows? It certainly doesn't look like it, especially when they make changes like not ha- no Diaz, bring in Stones to play with Laporte, and as shamelessly stolen from a fellow journalist on Twitter, last 13 games with Stones and Laporte, 13 wins, 41 goals scored, and one conceded. I mean, that's without your supposed best player and talisman. That's absolutely extraordinary. You know, I think Alison makes an interesting point about the Lukaku causing seeming disruption. No Harry Kane. City essentially, yes, Jack Grealish is a bit of a conversation piece, but essentially the same team as last season. And actually in this age of multi-million dollar spending all the time, quite refreshing that a team is just relentlessly ploughing on with winning and playing in the same very, as Alison says, ruthless way. I'm going to say that they're going to crack a little <laughs> because I've said it so many times and I do think there may there might be something maybe they'll get injuries maybe they'll be affected a bit more by COVID although they've had a few COVID cases recently haven't they and mm. it didn't seem to bother them so yeah the, the, the Stones-Laporte thing was the most striking thing for me to make that kind of a change in this kind of a game and they just absolutely dominated Lukaku and looked so comfortable. Matt, I've been speaking to my friends that support Chelsea and Liverpool this morning about what the difference is between them and Manchester City. And we've had a few interesting conversations. I mean, I think the main point was not just Manchester City have loads of money, but uh, but what they've done with it is basically be excellent in every single department of the club, recruitment, the team on the pitch, the training ground, the infrastructure, everything seems to have gone right over the past, what, five to ten years. The first few years weren't essentially great but what is the difference for you now why has what was meant to be a three horse race turned into a bit of a procession big question but i mean uh, the, the city i mean the city you know, regime in this era as you said i mean it was being built for guardiola even before guardiola arrived um he knew the people he was going to work for there was a, a basic stability I and mean, i think we all you know he's one big thing that's been disproved was this idea that you know he he burns up after three or four years and burns everyone up with him he's just this intensity is unsustainable and City is the the place where you know this has been disavowed and that's because of the people he's got around him he is you know served I mean he is intense you speak to anyone at City and they can say he can be an absolute pain in the butt to work for but he would actually take that as a compliment um he is a pain in the butt because he's such a perfectionist and uh he's relentlessly demanding and the difference at City is that you know he makes those demands and people jump and, you know, within a certain degree of reason, they deliver everything he wants. So, you know, this is just, sort of, this is, you know, the sort of snowballing work of, of not just his time, but a couple of years before he even got there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of, and we're talking one of the greatest, you know, uh, managers that's ever worked. I mean, you know, there are probably still some people out there carping that, you know, I could do it with this team. I could have done it with Lionel Messi, but, I think, you know, there's no doubt that he is one of the most creative coaching minds that we have seen in decades. And yeah, I mean, all of those things add up to a 
an extraordinary benchmark plus plus obviously not forgetting the billion pound team squad that you've <laughs> got um trying to keep pace with that is 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 incredibly hard and that's why you know you look at the table and we've seen bigger um sort of transformations in a league table than this you know if you go back in in premier league history i remember 97 98 man you were uh, 11 12 points clear the bookies were paying out at this time saying you know there's no way a team like united blows it and arsenal came storming through united as you'll know no need no reminding you cracked and um complete transformation really unexpected but i, I just don't see that that's going to happen this time city have got too much going for them simple as that even if they get a couple of key injuries then you've sensed that they have the depth to uh to replace them it was a brilliant goal to win it from kevin de Bruyne. any question marks i don't want to be too harsh over the goalkeeping here well, he did he did weirdly move to the his wrong right. way it was just the tiniest movement mm. I wondered if he did that on purpose mm. to give himself more reach you know like a springboard movement like he always meant to go the right way mm. but it, well, if that's if that was the reason it backfired, because I, if he hadn't, maybe he would have reached. I was at the game, and actually, as as Kevin De Bruyne charges forward, you you see in your mind, right, he's coming forward, he's building up ahead of steam, he's going to smash this, you know, into the back of the net, and he stops. And in that moment that he basically completely, you know, he, he, his pace changes completely, he slows down entirely. Everyone in the Chelsea defense goes from thinking shot, 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 shot to pass. Yeah. Thiago Silva thinks right there's a pass left there's yeah. a pass right and he doesn't if you watch again Thiago Silva doesn't charge in to block you no, know you think doesn't. in that situation great centre back like him he's going to he's going to block a shot why hasn't he done that and he's taken a little step back as well thinking I have to think about who's mm. going to get the ball played through to them and I think Kepa does the same he almost stops thinking right this isn't going to be a shot there's going to be a slide mm. rule pass one way or the other and he moves to his right in case he has to go that way Thiago Silva's thinking about going the other and actually he ends up a little bit on his heels and he can't reach the shot which isn't really in the corner but I didn't blame either of them no. which is why I asked I think it's interesting it reminds me a little bit of the Salah goal against Chelsea a few weeks ago when we talked about how he did Marcus Alonso I think by I'm going to go in on my left I'm going to go in on my left oh no it's alright I'll go down the right and then with Mendy I'm going to bend it in the far corner no no I'm not I'm going to beat you in near post whether De Bruyne was doing it deliberately or not, or whether he did just take that split-second pause to assess his options and then go, oh, actually, I can just pop it in the bottom corner. But as you say, Hugh, you're spot on, I think, because for Silva and Kepper, it was that brief moment that De Bruyne took that then made them take that brief step moment pause, which gave him the chance. Belgian brilliance for Manchester City. Not quite the story for Chelsea. Um, Thomas Tuchel saying after the game that Chelsea lacked quality up front. It was a poor day for Romelu Lukaku. What do you think the issue is with him? Maybe in this game? I don't know if you think it's more broad than that. Alison, I'll start with you. A few weeks back, when Lukaku gate broke, I did say this 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 doesn't feel right because Tuchel had got gone to five or six players and and made it clear that they they also felt his his sort of um, interview he'd given in Italy about how he wanted to go back back there one day was you know not not sanctioned and he shouldn't have said it and it undermined his um, presence at, at, at the club so but Tuchel didn't do it on his own he got other players involved and I did say at the time what when he comes back into the dressing room what what will the atmosphere be like? I mean, they might all put their arms around him and say, oh, great to see you again. But he will surely harbour 
doubts about how it's that problem evolved. And now, I mean, it sounds simplistic, but there is a disconnect between him and his teammates. There were various situations where you felt, as he does, he know these people. Why is why is he not passing to him? That's an obvious pass. Why is he not passing to him? Why is he passing to him? Why is he not choosing to shoot? Is he feeling like he's going to be accused of being selfish if he shoots? We all love Lukaku because he's this powerful, confident centre forward who does shoot perhaps when most people wouldn't and pulls it off often. You know, he's got that that strength of character, presence, aura, whatever you want to call it. If he's feeling inhibited because people are criticising his his very personality, and that's how he will feel. I mean, it's all very well talking about what the club feels, what Tuchel feels, what his teammates feel what his former club feels. I mean, it's if you're the expensive star name striker in a team, you have to feel good about yourself. You have to feel everyone buys into what you are. And if he's hesitant about that, I think that's the sort of performance you got against um, Man City. Yes, of course, Manchester City, as I said earlier, incredibly good defensively. But there were... There always are with City moments because they commit and they hold a high line and so on that you can get at them. But you need to be really confident in yourself and your teammates to do that and he's not I don't think he is it's a surprise and that I think I was surprised that um, Tuchel went sort of front front foot and aggressive with Lukaku again I mean I think you know understand on the back of of the interview and the need to to show who's boss but you know it's, it's interesting I remember doing the, the one of the columns with Jose Mourinho last um, last summer and he was talking about Lukaku and how you know it's you know he, he always made the observation this is a guy who, who definitely needs the that sense of being like, you know, his, his person, some players can thrive off confrontation. Others need to feel very much, you know, A, a part of the group and maybe even sort of king of the group. And, and I think Alison's right. I think, you know, that disc, that disconnect, you know, is being played out on the pitch and, and say all the more reason why, yeah, I, I don't blame Tuchel for being, you know, it's clearly not his fault uh, necessarily that there is that, schism in the first place but it did seem almost a high risk strategy to be trying to solve it by pointing the finger again after this game there was a moment wasn't there I think it was in the first half with a attempted one-two with Hakim Ziyech where Lukaku just completely overhit the pass and Ziyech did a very almost sort of oh don't worry Rom you know don't worry about it mate when actually it was a really really poor ball and a rare chance to get in behind he, he, he then returned the favour yeah exactly <laughs> but that exactly exactly and that's interesting you know the guys are talking there about managerial arm round the shoulder type with Lukaku and I think as well he very much needs that on the pitch with his teammates in terms of the consistency in the playing style we talked in you know some of those quotes about um, Inter Milan and returning and how much he loved playing with Lautaro Martinez at Inter and you think back he did very well at Everton when he had an entire team geared towards him scoring goals. I think there's a bit of that going on at Chelsea as well. We've talked about it before. Though all those players they've got in those positions behind and around Lukaku, Havertz, Pulisic, Ziyech, Hudson-Odoi, Mason Mount, all that, he hasn't formed any kind of bond with mm. them on the pitch as well as the kind of bond Alisson was talking about in terms of camaraderie. And I think that's a massive part of Lukaku's game. You know, he's not Mo Salah. As much as he can occasionally score a screamer, he's not Mo Salah. He needs the team working for him and he needs to make consistent partnerships, I think. And that's also what's missing. I think there needs to be an improvement at Chelsea, I have to say. I think they're good. They're a very, very good team. 
But um, there is a gulf between them and Manchester City for me. And I don't know if, if Thomas Tuchel's going to bridge that gap. We're going to see what happens, I think, with his future. Um, we know what's going to happen when it comes to Rafa Benitez, though. He has been sacked as the Everton boss after less than seven months in charge. They were beaten 2-1 by Norwich City at the weekend. Uh, they've only won one of their last 13 Premier League games. They're 15th in the table, six points above the drop. Uh, the club say they will update on a permanent replacement in due course. Um, but their board did hold an emergency meeting after that game on Saturday. It was a ninth loss in the past 12 league games. There was a banner, get out of our club, which was very strange because... The cameras went to it and they sort of put it away. Someone sort of said, hold on a minute, you know, we might come back in this game, not too early. And then it came back out again later on in the game, which was much to the enjoyment of the broadcasters because they finally got a good shot of it. And in the end, those supporters were rewarded, I guess, if you like, with, with what they hoped, which is that Rafa Benitez left the club. I don't know if this is the right decision, which I know the Everton fans, most football fans will be surprised with. It's um, a bit of a poison chalice. I don't know who's going to do a much better job. Maybe I'm just naive. What do you think? Well, first of all, who'd go? I mean, there are there are people who do a good job, but I don't think they go to Everton now no. because <laughs> your reputation's not going to be enhanced, is it? Everyone's saying Benitez was a bad appointment in the first place, as if that means he's off the hook. The reason people say that is because the minute there was an issue or a run of bad form or bad luck, the fans would turn because... At best, they were pragmatic about it. I know some very, very passionate Evertonians who absolutely detest Liverpool, but they were prepared to say, "Well, if he's if if Rafa can do it, if he can if he can change our fortunes, if he can make us, you know, compete at the highest level, be considered an elite club, then that's fine. We're, we're happy to go with it because we really need it. And the idea is, it was a bad appointment because if he doesn't do that." They're going to turn quicker on a former Liverpool manager than they're going to turn on anyone else. But I would say the reason it was a poor appointment is because the impression I get is that there's quite a lot of player power or player indulgence at Everton. You need the players to be handled. Good managers do that, don't they? I mean, we've just been talking about Pep Guardiola and how he's difficult, to, people find him difficult and demanding. And even after we've been gushing over Kevin De Bruyne's goal, but he, he said, oh, he can play better. He's always, always asking for more for the, from the players. If you've got a manager, and, and Rafa is like this, he's a bit of a micromanager. It's a famous story of him going in at Anfield and changing all the light bulbs personally because he didn't like the wattage. You know, he's, he's somebody who who wants to be on top of everything, that makes life difficult for players. If the players know, well, you know, beyond the manager, the board are quite sort of paternalistic and they do they do have their favourite players. And if you go around the um the boardroom rooms, you know, the the nice new offices they've got on the on the on the, the, the riverfront there, you know, they'll have they have pictures and shirts of players. It's a bit fanboy-ish, right? The vibe is we love our players. So if you've got a manager he wants to be strict and the players don't want to, they don't want anyone being strict with them. They know they've got the upper hand because they know that Rafa Benitez is on thin ice. They're not going to buy into a Rafa regime because they know the fans will turn on him. They know they'll be okay. You need a manager that is got this sort of 
pure background that everybody buys into that can take real masterful control and and be a tough manager to work for because there's nowhere else for the players to go. The players had an excuse from day one with Rafa Benitez is what I'm trying to say because they knew when it came to the crunch, he'd be the one to go because so many people at the club were like, uh, should we be having the former Liverpool manager here or not? So in that sense, it wasn't about Benitez as a man or a manager. It was just about the impact. He, he was limited. He could not have a big impact on players who are, I think, a bit indulged. I mean, it's very strange, the timing of it. He spent, what, 1.7 million in the summer. He'd been given a little bit more funds in January, brought in a few players. Luca Dina had left the club, which was a big one for the fans, of course, and a very talented player to go out the door when you're struggling as well. Benitez uh, saying in his statement, it's only when you're inside that you realise the magnitude of the task. I feel for him on this because... And this is why I think it's a bit of a poison chalice, and he alludes to it. The club has been so poorly run, appointing five managers in five years, uh, that the hierarchy has to take responsibility for that coming to fruition in terms of results. Matt, what do you think? No, totally. Um, I mean, I've been fascinated by Mashiri ever since way back. Uh, a small group of us went to interview Usmanov in Moscow. Um, he flew us out on his private jet, which was uh, the only private jet I've ever been on, I should add. And, um, <laughs> uh, and there was this guy who came along with it and, and he was sort of almost, he was almost sort of our travel guide. He, he sort of took us onto the plane and took us to Moscow and, and sort of made sure that we all got there in one piece. And um, uh, it was only subsequently that this guy um, who was revealed to be Mashiri uh, it all started to make sense. It was a very strange dynamic then, and I find it still obviously a very strange dynamic now. We know about their sort of in, this sort of strange intertwining, but he was a sort of mysterious, hard to pin down guy then, and he's become well, certainly any sensible thought has been harder to pin down at Everton. I think it's been a reign that's been a complete mess. I think he's one of those owners that's sort of half interfered, half thinking he knows what he's doing, and that sort of heart, you know. I, I want to say on this half in, half out sort of approach, as complicated things. I know that, you know, people at Everton have been, he, he likes to get good PR. I know people at Everton have been hugely frustrated that they sort of found out big news via, you know, talk sport. Um, I know that, you know, because of he's sort of very erratic in the way he handles those communications. I think his appointment, I mean, even the appointment of Carlo Ancelotti, you could say that's, oh, what a coup that was. To be honest, it, to me, it made no sense at all. It was obvious that someone like Ancelotti, one of the you know most successful managers of the last 20, 30 years was going to jump to a club like Real Madrid at the first op opportunity. You know, Everton, with all due respect, is is not Real Madrid, and he's just lurched around, isn't it? How, how can you make appointments that are sort of as far ranging as Allardyce and Ancelotti? I mean, it just uh, you know there's there's just no there's been no strategy to it. We've seen directors of football with no direction. We've seen you know, the staffing levels. We've seen schisms in the board about a lot of major appointments and obviously we've seen an awful lot of of money a hell of a lot of money wasted on again on erratic signing so someone like Benitez comes in and he's got a hodgepodge of a squad that's been bolted you know sort of he's trying to bolt together that's been appointed by the board by six different coaches so you know I don't think Rafa Benitez can get entirely off the hook but I think you know if I was an Everton fan I'd be just thinking you know, where the heck is Mashiri taking us? Because you can't see a direction 
in any of it. Yeah, and of course, director of football Marcel Brands went in December and that was meant to uh, sort of alleviate the anger of the fans, wasn't it? It was like, I can't sack another manager so Marcel Brands can leave. Yeah, they've wasted a lot of money, not just under Marcel Brands, but the previous director of football as well. That's given them a very disjointed squad, including, of course, overhaul of managers constantly, meaning that the squad then changes. And the people linked with replacing Rafa Benitez, again, it seems like there's this big variety. Graham Potter, the Brighton boss, strongly linked. I wouldn't do it if I was him, but there mm-hmm. you go. Uh, former Everton boss, Roberto Martinez, who Mashiri first got rid of. And now the Belgian boss, of course, why he would want to come to Everton at this time, World Cup year. Derby boss, Wayne Rooney, you know, once a blue, etc., etc. But Duncan Ferguson on interim till the end of the season. I mean, they're all there's a variety of characters and styles of football. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you talk about that variety because I was then thinking about the list of managers before and you've got Koeman, Allardyce, Marco Silva, Ancelotti, Benitez. And as you say, that's a complete range of styles, personalities, experience, background, different abilities to lure different types of players. And they've all got 10 years of 58 games, 26 games, 60 games, 67 games, 22 games. And I mean, it's just completely mad really that that is how the club has been run with no direction and it comes back to this point that we've not mentioned it for a while but it is a big theme on this podcast what what is your club what is it about and it's something that we've praised David Moyes for doing at West Ham you feel like Steven Gerrard is trying to do it at Aston Villa as you say Hugh Brighton have got a clear identity and strategy on and off the pitch under Graham Potter Everton are way behind these clubs and yet if you said that to some fans they'd be absolutely distraught at that idea I know and obviously Moyes you know when he had his that truncated year at West Ham you know he he did a good job there and left and he was available then um, in all that time you know here's a guy who you know I I think the fans would have welcomed Um, obviously did great stuff at at, at Everton and um, yeah just he was spurned then and you know obviously Everton would 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 grab him now, but he's um, he's doing good stuff at West Ham instead. And as you mentioned, Potter. I mean, I, I don't think Potter would 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 leave for that at the moment. Why why should he? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's exactly the type of manager that was sort of sh- was under Everton's noses all this time. But they were, yeah, they didn't have anyone sort of smart enough to think of the sort of strategic look they were sort of casting around. What is so instructive, I think, is that Mashiri's thinking of getting Roberto Martinez or would like him to come back to the club because <laughs> Martinez is one of the nicest people in football. He is lovely company. He's, and I'm sure Mashir is thinking, oh, I like, I, I like talking to him. <laughs> he was not, I liked him. Yeah, let's have him back because oh, I maybe I shouldn't have got rid of him because he was nice and Rafa was always asking for things and Koeman, well, he was quite scary. I, I want... I want to go back to someone I liked. I mean, it does does feel indulgent as opposed to properly thought through. To me, thinking about Everton, there's a slight parallel almost with Manchester United in that the post-Sir Alex Ferguson era, they've been scattergunning and completely lost. And Everton, the post-David Moyes era, who ironically enough went to Manchester United and they've been doing the same, trying to work out what the hell they are. But the problem when you're Everton as opposed to Manchester United is Manchester United can buy loads of players and still scrap around the European places whilst they're trying to work out what they are and seemingly a point Ralph Ranier can become a pressing team with loads of young players and exciting. Everton are now in a relegation scrap. You know, they've got Newcastle and Brentford coming up after they play Villa. 
So Stevie G sticks one over them. They're in a serious, serious, serious trouble, which is why they then end up going down the routes of like Allardyce and others to get them out of it. And then they have the moment where they go, we're better than this. And they go for Angelotti, who, as Matt says, jumps ship at this first opportunity. And round and round and round we go. They're in a difficult bind because if they go for a big project, let's start it all again. You know, as we're saying, Manchester United might be doing with Ralph Ragnick. That takes time and it also takes money that they might not have. And they might find themselves in a relegation, a proper relegation scrap come kind of April. And through it all, you've got the giant metaphor of the new stadium. Never has yes, a stadium true. taken so long to be built. Yeah. And they're only at the point where they're putting they're putting concrete in holes. It's absolutely ridiculous. Maybe the moment that stadium is built, that'll be when they are Phoenix-like rising from the ashes of what they have. But there's this... I'm not being entirely silly about that. There is a sense of temporary... There's a temporary feel to Goodison. Mm. It's crumbling and they're not going to do it up because they're going to go to a new stadium, probably. It's like they're, they're a turmoil of their own making. It's like they don't, I don't know. It's like if you're building your own little, like Matt, I think you've got a loft extension going on at the moment, <laughs> haven't you? Well, it's like, you know, you've got a loft extension going on. So you're unlikely to sort of decorate the rooms in and around, aren't you? Because you're going <laughs> to want to finish the big heavy work before you do the little stuff. And Everton feels a bit, like that they're they're in limbo don't, don't, in, they're in limbo don't underestimate my ability to screw my own house up <laughs> <laughs> yes that there's me and diy um don't don't go well together but no wasn't it was it, it was him but mashiri took over and talked about was it something um something about making them the hollywood club of of the northwest or something wasn't there some ludicrous poppycock quote about that but there yeah, always I mean, is there, there are always is with a new yeah. owner. Yeah. Disaster movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's no to it. Well, we have to divert attention, I think, from the loft to the basement because the bottom of the Premier League table, what? Oh, you see what I did there? Come on, man. Yeah. That is class. That's, that's, that's link of the year thank, thank so you, far. Thank you. Uh, Everton, 19 played, 19 points. Watford also, 19 played, 14 points. Um, and then you get into the bottom three. Norwich, 21 played, 13 points. Newcastle, 20 played, and they have 12 points. And then at the bottom now, 17 played, 11 points for Burnley. Everton do risk being dragged into that, you have to say. But after the weekend's results, a one-all draw between Newcastle and Watford at St. James's Park and Norwich's victory over Everton, it is very tough to call, Tom. It is. I, don't know, I just can't believe it. I mean, we all, we'd all written Norwich off, worst team in Premier League history. And they're third from bottom. They've only scored 10 goals. Now, this could be one of the greatest escapes of all time if Dean Smith pulls this off, particularly as you watch the other teams and you think they're just not getting better as they should have been. Newcastle, again, I mean, you can sign all the players you want if you keep conceding goals. They've dropped the most points from winning positions in the league, 21, which is three more than Southampton. And you could just see that etched on Eddie Howe's face when that header went in. He's like, oh, for God's sake, lads, not again. But... They just look so flimsy and so susceptible to that. Even at St. James's Park, you know, this supposed fortress. And it comes back to something that Alison's talked about before with the kind of nerves and the slight idea that everything else is fantastic. And then you're like, oh, crap, the football as well. Forgot about that. Bit. <laughs> it is January and they probably should have bought a defender by now. So well, you can't really complain. Well, you? no, but you are hearing as well reports that they're going to keep following our suggestion, Hugh, which I think we made when we said they should just copy Burnley and sign Sean Dyche and all their players and that they're going to go in for James Tarkovsky, which wouldn't surprise me no. um, and would be a pretty big move in the relegation battle because I think he would be far more significant signing than even Chris Wood. 
because um, that'd be a far bigger loss for Burnley. I, it's just just so impossible to call. I mean, I, I'm genuinely baffled by the idea that Norwich have put themselves in a position with that win where they now could get out of it. I mean, Watford as well just looks so inconsistent. I think you said it recently, Hugh, that they'd almost had their little jump and their little moment probably with that big win at Everton as well. So you can't necessarily see them coming again. I wonder whether it'll be three from those four unless Everton get dragged into it. Yeah, it's going to be a big, uh, I think, month and next few weeks for some of the clubs at the bottom of the table before things get a little bit more defined as well. And, and look, when it comes to Watford, you've got to say other teams around them need to take their opportunity while the Africa Cup of Nations is on because some of their starting 11 are away at the moment and when they're back, it will be a stronger side. Uh, anyway, loads still to come on the game podcast. Remember, if you're enjoying it, rate us, uh, leave us a review. Make sure you're subscribed as well. We'll talk about postponements in the Premier League and then it's Dicko's Diaries. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, Tottenham Hotspur say they are extremely surprised at the decision to call off the North London derby against Arsenal at the weekend. Arsenal's request into the Premier League to postpone that game due to a lack of eligible players was granted a little bit over 24 hours before kickoff. The Premier League rules say that clubs can apply for postponement if COVID-19 is a factor in teams having fewer than 13 players and a goalkeeper available. Now, Spurs said in a statement, the original intention of the guidance was to deal with player availability directly affected by COVID cases resulting in depleted squads that when taken together with injuries would result in the club being unable to field a team. They say, we do not believe it was the intent to deal with player availability unrelated to COVID. We now may be seeing the unintended consequences of this rule. It has been reported that Arsenal only have one COVID case. Uh, um, Alison, I know you've written about this this weekend. Who's to blame? Oh, I've written about it deeply sarcastically, actually, <laughs> because it's, I mean, this has to be the point where it changes, surely. It's ludicrous. You have the comparison with Leeds United down, I mean, literally bare bones. There's, you know, there's a 12-year-old on the bench. It's ridiculous and they, they put out a team and show that a club is bigger than the first 11 most fans can name. It's about whether you've got um, 
a holistic approach that everyone involved in the club, no matter what age group, they're all working to the same pattern. So you can call upon all these players that you have at your disposal. That's the whole point of being a big club in a big league. You are more than just, you know, the, the, the normal team sheet you see. Arsenal seem to take the view that well, for some reason they're the only club for whom the Africa Cup of Nations has caused uh, interruption. One of their absentees is because of a red card. That that, that is never an excuse. Is it? That's part of the punishment is you have to field a weakened team. I'm talking about Granite Jacker, of course. Um, they've got injuries, but none of them are. They're a mixture of long, long-term, short-term, may or may not be fit sort of players. Uh, and um, Erdegaard, we understand, tested positive and subsequent to them putting in their application for the game against Spurs to be postponed, one other player seems to have tested positive. And I think the whole of football wanted the panel, which has medics on it, apparently, to assess the the application and say, well, actually, you know, one, possibly two cases of COVID, your training ground hasn't been closed down. This is not what this emergency assessment procedure is for. It's a bit you're a bit unlucky, but you can you can put a team together. You can put a team together. And just look at Leeds. Leeds have got a team together. Leeds if Leeds had wanted the game postponed and had had one COVID case, you was you suspect then that would have been cancelled their game against West Ham. So you can see it's inequitous, it's not right, it's creating um also it's self-defeating because it's creating a backlog which will in itself cause problems for the clubs and possibly be bad for the players who need you're being pushed to come back quicker than they should a backlog means players suffer so you're going to have this sort of self-perpetuating roller coaster or the situation where you just get more and more injuries because you're pushing the players too much player welfare has been a big thing all season and in the short term Allowing a team, a club to call a game off sounds like you're putting player welfare first, but you're not. You're creating problems down the line. And also it's the whole thing about postponements is about public health. It's about stopping the spread of a virus. It's not about, oh, you know, you're, you're a big club with a big game and you can't feel the team you really would like to. And it feels like an excuse and you shouldn't be using a pandemic as an excuse. It's... Anyway, the, the mood is that they're not going to change this, this this type of postponement where you've got a lot of people out, missing, suspended, whatever, but you've got one or two COVID cases will allow you to get um, a match postponed. And that just feels deeply immoral, actually. I mean, I, I said it a while ago. So all these people saying, you know, why, why finally when it's Arsenal do you decide to call it out? I mean, you may not have been listening when it was... Newcastle, Leicester, Burnley, I mean, about half a dozen clubs in the Premier League have been criticised for their requests. Remember Crystal Palace, we spoke about their game was actually on after their request was rejected and it was virtually a full strength team. There have been uh, some clubs trying to um, use, in my opinion, the Premier League's leniency on this. Too many games, too many requests were allowed, have been allowed quite clearly. And in my opinion, they've put... I think they've put the broadcasters first. They've put the quality of the players on show ahead of the fans having matches on and the schedule, which, by the way, all these clubs are constantly complaining about. So we'll see how it works out towards the end of the season. What happens now, though? That's the question, Matt. What, what do you think? Well, uh, like Zadison said, I mean, they've said that they're not going to... Um... 
you know, change change the actual rules, but you would certainly hope the interpretation of them is is stiff. And I don't think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think there was obviously, you know, this is, I think this was the worst case, obviously the most high profile case um, of it. But I like to think that the backlash against it, the fact that pretty much everyone apart from an Arsenal sympathiser is saying enough's enough that this is taking advantage of a situation rather than what the rule was for. Um, hopefully that is, you know, shall we say, stiffen the Premier League resolve to to not be a soft touch as they ridiculously have in this case. I mean, like I said, if you sign African players, you know months in advance they're going to AFCON. If, you know, if, if Jack is stupid enough to get sent off, then you're going to miss him. Um, those are not not even close to reasons to, uh, you know, in some ways, given what Arsenal have seen around them, you can't blame Arsenal for making the request in a totally self-serving way. But uh, the Premier League's not had great leadership on this issue at all. We so often take our cue from uh, the Bundesliga in Germany. And there was another good example of this from Bayern Munich. They lost to Borussia Mönchengladbach recently, but they had nine positive COVID cases, I think. It resulted in them playing a fairly patched up team and their bench had a senior goalkeeper, and then the rest was all youth academy players. Um, some players who'd never played for the club before, and they just put out a team um, and talked about it uh, and just, got on with it. Just getting some transfer news in from uh, Fabrizio Romano, so you know you can take it with a pinch of salt if you want. Here we go. Arsenal have loaned out Pablo Mari to Udinese until the end of the season. Another player they don't need you know, in their yeah. squad at the moment because it's not like we're getting games called off because no, exactly. we haven't got enough players or anything like that. It's a bit bit ridiculous. It is a bit ridiculous. But I mean, the guys have talked about it there. I don't necessarily want to boot Arsenal too much um, just because, not because I've been so complimentary of them, but because I think it's the system that's at fault here and it's the um, the Premier League and who, by all accounts, in today's paper, Matt Lawton and Gary Jacob writing that they've got no plans to change it or review it in any way whatsoever. So let's crack on with the farce and keep going. I don't think they think it's a farce. I think they've measured up two negative stories and said that this is the more acceptable negative story for them. Do we want fans up in arms at us because we force teams to play, you know, 16 and 17 year olds just to get games on? Or do we want fans up in arms with us because the game's been called off? But I think, I think they've chosen this as the lesser of their perceived two evils. Which is a very strange one because I think this country, arguably more than any other, are obsessed with young players and young talent. And we love a story about this 15-year-old who burst onto the scene. I mean, Marcus Rashford might not have a career that he's got now and the notoriety that he's got now on the pitch were it not for a host of injuries at Manchester United that allowed him to be thrown in and out of nowhere in a European Cup game, but a European game by Louis van Gaal. So these these games provide great stories. You know, Leeds had um, Archie Gray, fifteen years old, mm. related to former former Leeds legend on the bench. You know, they're, they're great things. So uh, I'd, uh, I'm not saying that you're wrong, Hugh, but I'm saying that if that is the reason, it's a strange one to go down because we love watching young players coming through. Also, I don't I don't know why they think they've got a dilemma because all you have to do is say, is this fixture a threat to public health yes or no and quite clearly Arsenal v Spurs was not a threat to public health uh, well that's not why they've called it off though it's nothing to do with public health this exactly is a, but there is no is, dilemma they're making is, a dilemma this is about wealth this is about broadcasters being happy wealth not health this is about the north <gasps> exactly well, I didn't go full hog with it but I think Come it was on. implied you know uh, listen uh, the Premier League has sat back and said the North London derby 
you know, it's it's a you know one of the diamonds in our in our broadcasting crown. Whoever's paid to show it, you know that that gets a lot of viewers. Um, it's the big game in, in a derby sense, I think. You know, in the Premier League, um, and we want to see a good show. We don't want Tottenham to roll over Arsenal's under twenty threes. I mean, that by the way is another farce about their rules. Um, Arsenal put in the request, and a couple of hours later, their under-23s are playing a game against West Ham in the under in Premier League 2, it's called now. Um, and I don't, you know, that's perfectly fine because according to the rules, none of those players are eligible anyway. Um, and I thought that was ridiculous. And the rules, by the way, people keep saying you can't change the rules midway through a season for a variety of arguments. You know, the day before the FA Cup third round, the Premier League adjusted their rules on what a senior player was so that none of the players that played in the FA Cup, just in case loads of youngsters played in the FA Cup or the Premier League teams, you know, vastly changed their sides, would be eligible for the Premier League. They would not be counted as senior players. Why? Because the FA Cup said, if you don't play, your game will be forfeited. And so no games were called off in the FA Cup. Premier League, we all come back and suddenly... You know, teams like Leicester, having played a game in the FA Cup, they're putting in a request hours later to have their next Premier League game postponed. You know, it's just, it's been wholly unnecessary, to be perfectly honest. I don't blame any of the individual clubs for now testing the uh, Premier League on this because they've, they've been very weak, very weak, very lenient on this rule, which, you know, it looked at the time when you saw it, 13 players and a goalkeeper, you know, tough, hard and fast rules. And it's not been applied whatsoever. Um, and I, I just think it's been silly, to be perfectly honest. Not to dwell on it too much, you know. Not that it's not that it's annoyed me or anything like that. More to come on the game podcast. Uh, we're going to devote here until the end <laughs> of the podcast. You know, just wanted to catch up with our old friend Matt Dickinson. Yeah, I didn't get a Christmas text. You know, he didn't wish me Happy New Year. <laughs> but he's back nonetheless, you know, showing the lack of power I have on this, this podcast, frankly. Um, Matt, listen... Everyone wants to know what you've really been up to. You know, we know you've changed your role slightly at the Times. We still see your features, but what are you up to? Yeah, well, I'm saying I'm still still involved uh, at the Times. I'm very happy to be so. Um, doing my columns and, and trying to land some interesting features and interviews and stories behind stories. I'm also on the side, um, actually doing some training to be a psychotherapist. So if uh if you're ever in need of 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 any resources in that respect let me know but um it's a long it's a long road before i'm uh, qualified but um yeah it's a passion i've got and uh, i'm really loving it what drew you into that path though and how's it going uh it was actually i benefited massively from the process myself uh went in to uh see a therapist in a bit of a state um some years back uh six or so years ago and uh i found it life changing to be honest uh I didn't realize at the time how little I knew uh, and understood about myself. And it just brought so much more clarity to my self-understanding. It brought a lot more happiness to my life, uh, a sort of healthier way of living. I could evangelize for a long time about this. But yeah, I just thought it was it. I literally, it literally was a life changing process. And having had the benefit of that, I, I got a real passion for sort of seeing if I could share that with, with other people. You can evangelize about it some more if you, if you want to. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've given the floor is yours, Matt. Well, yeah, I just think it's, you know, self-understanding, I think is, you know, I mean, I wish, I wish that actually some of it was even taught to, you know, I've got teenage kids and I wonder why this is almost not a life skill. You know, I mean, you could argue that, you know, teenagers are far too busy with 
all the joys of life and, and running around and so on. But I just think, you know, even if it's as simple as um, I know some schools are even looking at it at, at, at sort of mindfulness sort of work and that type of of just basically understanding how much we're you know yanked around by these voices in our head and how much you know we're we're sort of self-sabotage ourselves in life and and um so much of the sort of hurt and pain we feel is is self-inflicted and i just think teaching life skills about that um i mean say i had to start learning it when i was 45 but i wish you know maybe that was maybe it was going to take a life crisis uh, a for me to have that sort of waking up, maybe other people, um, but maybe it shouldn't take a crisis. Maybe we should try and share this sort of understanding earlier in life with people. Still got the Ferrari outside, right? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, as, 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 as midlife crisis go, um, as much as I could afford was a, a new bike, but, um, um, <laughs> uh, but no, it's, um, no, it's, uh, I say, I, you know, I don't want to be too happy clappy about it. Cause the other thing I should say is, you know, which, you know, is part of the training I'm doing as well. I, I know it's not, you know, a lot of people find it incredibly daunting to walk into a therapist. They say, look, you know, as humans, we want to avoid all the, uh, painful things in life we you know it's 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 a natural uh human instinct to uh avert our gaze from that sort of stuff but i i would just say you know if people do reach a point um and i do think the conversation around this is changing all the time you know um and i think that's great in itself is that you know and particularly among men i mean you look at the suicide rate among men and that is clearly related to a a male inability to to sort of seek help to feel like you know they can show vulnerability and you know if i can be involved in any small way and as part of that conversation and um that work then i would regard it as you know as uh hugely fulfilling matt i have two questions for you one is has your training affected the way you view sports stars and particularly footballers who are often called you know spoiled and we're only just starting to talk about player mental health and I wondered if you thought differently about the pressures they're under and secondly do you think your interview style has changed since you started to learn how to be um, a counsellor? Oh good questions I mean it's funny it's one thing quite a few people have said do I would I intend to take this work into the sports field I, I mean I'm actually I wouldn't rule it out, and it's obviously you know bring would bring together two you know bits of of my life that I'm hugely sort of interested in and fascinated in. I, I would only say that I think a lot of sports people are looking to patch themselves up for the weekend. I mean, ultimately they want to go out and perform, and obviously psychotherapy tends to be doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be deeper work. Doesn't have to be examining childhood you know difficulties or traumas um it can just be you know helping people get through the day or get through the week but i think in you know sports psychology is a sort of narrower um particular field it, again it doesn't have to be but I, I just get that's my sense and that to be honest if uh, i'm only being slightly facetious and it's because obviously it's a serious subject but i you know I, I could easily end up imagine working in the media i think <laughs> i think we know there's plenty of highly strong journalists out there um, and, you know, um, every every job and every field brings its own strains and pressures, but I only have to look around the press box. And, um, you know, I know plenty of people in our trade who, you know, seek mental health um, again. And I think that's something that's been almost under the carpet for, for most of my profession. And it's only now, actually, that people are starting to be a bit more open about it and, you know, about... Uh, 
about time. Um, also, and your second thing, I, th- I think, it, I hope it has actually sort of changed how I go about the job. I just think understanding people, uh, you know, is part of the reason why I love journalism. There is an overlap between journalism and the, the work I'm doing in therapy. And that I think it's about curiosity in people, understanding what makes people tick, what their motivations are. So I think there's definitely an overlap there. But I, I would like to hope the two the two worlds can, you know, there's huge differences, but I do think there's a, a way that they can um, complement each other as well. Uh, let's move back to football a little bit, if we can. Um, one of your pieces last week I wanted to ask you about, um, football cannot be an inclusive environment for gay men when the World Cup is in Qatar. Um, and, and there's going to be more, I think, comments about Qatar and some of the human rights abuses, some of the laws, um, which are very um, different to most of the world. Let's call it that um, over the next, what what is it, 10, 11 months. Why did you choose to write this article at this time? Uh, it's something we've actually been talking about for a little while, a, a sort of piece around that. And it started off actually in the premise of talking about our sort of fixation um and it becomes a bit of a salacious fixation or a sort of headliney fixation about the gay footballer. Who is he? You know, come out, reveal yourself, you know. And uh, talking with um, well, a couple of guys who work at the Times, a few other, um, and, you know, these conversations don't have to be with, with gay guys, but obviously they're, you know, um, hugely invested in this, in this issue. And they talked about why, there's one comment in particular that just, someone said about the fact that as a gay guy, they felt an English football ground was still the place of all the places they visit in their life that they feel most wary, maybe even scared sometimes, maybe just that, that, that they feel intimidated. You know, they might, it might be a specific chant or comment, or it might just be a sense of, you know, this is a very overtly macho world and, yeah, um, they can be sort of made to feel outsiders, and that, that this was expressed two or three times to me and by people. And I just thought I would look into it. And then, obviously, going into 2022, we have the Qatar World Cup looming, um, and there's a zillion reasons why I think that's such an absurd decision. And then I saw Tom Daly did an alternative Christmas message speech in which he actually wrapped the two things together, talked about why it's a disgrace that the World Cup's going to Qatar, where, you know, um, uh, LGBT community are breaking the law and how, you know, how can football claim to be the sport for all and take its prize possession there, which is a great question. And he also then talked about, you know, he would love to see a gay footballer come out in 2022. And I sort of felt like, you know, Tom Daly's a, I think just he's a national treasure. He's a, you know, he's been just fantastic to watch as a diver and a spokesman, but even he was slightly falling into that trap of singling out the player. And I think we need to look at the wider community, the wider issue in, in, in football, what, you know, um, the rent boy chants that have suddenly uh, have now been clarified. That's become uh, a hate crime if you chant it. But I mean, why have we been waiting that long to, make that conclusion and what the hell are we doing if people are still singing that chant in the first place it's an interesting article uh, really well written once again from Matt Dickinson so check it out on the Times app right now now before we go it's time for Dickinson's Diaries <laughs> Blimey, I'm, I'm, I'm under pressure here. I just wanted to know from you what you've been noting in the world of football while we haven't been speaking to you 
each and every week. What's caught your eye? Well, if I could start with one just completely self-indulgent, but it's, I think it, obviously it was huge news at the same time in that um, Cambridge United, a club I grew up with as a lad and followed uh, up and down the country, um, to, to win at Newcastle obviously was just the humdinger of a result in, in so many ways, obviously with the deepening the Newcastle crisis. But it had particular resonance for me as a guy who in 1984, April, watched Cambridge United beat Newcastle, Kevin Keegan and all. But this, the reason why that win, it may have been my happiest day ever watching football, was that Cambridge had been on a 31-game un, uh, game, the games without a win. We were relegated. We were a mess. Newcastle were going up. They had Keegan Beardsley. They had this amazing team. Newcastle were given um, the whole of a stand. They were go- it's a promotion party, and Cambridge won with a scrappy penalty. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just you know those days where you just football seems like it could it takes you to somewhere that you didn't dream was possible. Um, so to, to to sort of have all those memories revived by the mighty use, um, mm-hmm. the club run by some really good people these days. I, I just thought lifted my spirits no end home to Luton Town next round yeah it's uh, easy yeah I mean Cambridge Cambridge are done uh, under the um, much maligned um, John Beck got released the quarterfinals twice um, in a row as, as even as a lower league club so maybe uh, maybe there's more old memories about to be stirred as well uh, what else have you been noticing then uh, I was fascinated by someone who's um, I've obviously dealt um, a, a lot with um Gary Neville through the years helped him write his autobiography, um, Name Drop, Name Drop. But he, <laughs> I thought the conversation he's been having, you know, wading into politics and even this discussion about whether he could become, you know, could he become a mayor of Manchester? I just find it fascinating. I mean, we're so used to footballers being, you know, for so long sort of belittled, I think, intellectually um, regarded as sort of, you know, stick stick to sports, stick to football sort of argument. And, you know, Obviously, I think we've seen that change with with you know one of the small good things about social media is that you know it's it's allowed certainly players to wade in on all sorts of different social issues. But the idea of a player actually becoming a sort of prominent political figure, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Um, of all that could try it, I think Gary's you know in a in a in a small group. But I, the thing about him is, I don't I don't put it past him to try. I just think he's. He's one of these guys, as we know, gets out of bed at five in the morning and, you know, wants to attack the world and thinks, you know, he, and he will not stop attacking the world till till he collapses at the end of the day. I mean, there's no one I've ever met in any walk of life who is more driven, works harder, backs uh, himself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just find that a fascinating debate to see if he, if he follows through on it. That was a party political broadcast brought to you by the <laughs> Labour Party. Yeah, oh. by, by his uh, his future director of communication. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be interesting though, wouldn't it, Tom? I think the red half of Manchester would all go and vote for him. Got to well, show that club loyalty. Well, absolutely. Manchester, they've got a scouser in charge in Andy Burnham at the minute. So I think Gary Neville afterwards would be um, a fitting replacement. I mean... I can guarantee there'll be no garden parties when we're in charge. <laughs> absolutely. I mean... It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because on the flip side, you have conversations which are fair and merited towards players like Marcus Rashford, who's obviously done a great deal of brilliant, brilliant work off the pitch, but he does so while still playing the game and questions being asked about, only recently, Paul Hurst wrote an excellent piece last week about his difficulties on the pitch, um, contrasting all those brilliant things he's done off the pitch as well. So it's interesting that, yes, Gary Neville is this uh, 
supercharged um, high achiever, but he's doing it now whilst off the pitch. I mean, Matt, was he always like that when he was a player as well? Um, I th- no, I mean, I think he was so, he was he was monastic as a player. I mean, mm. you know, he literally decided aged, you know, 19 that hanging out with the mates he had was going to be the detriment of his career and he cut his mates off. I mean, that's how, you know, you could argue that both ways, that sort mm. of ruthless or it's just, but he, you know, it's incredibly sensible. If you, he knew he had to do, he felt he had to, be that unbelievably dedicated to make it he didn't feel naturally gifted like Paul Scholes and so he you know he's just someone who sets his mind on something and then does it a thousand percent and you know that's and I think he's acknowledged that I think he's said that he can't just dabble in politics you know he I, so whether he's got space in his life given he's got a university property empire Salford City Football Club etc but I you know so and I, I, you know, I think the worst thing for him to do would be to, to do it sort of half cock. I think, you know, if if you if you want to, you know, you're ultimately serving, you know, the people you want hope to represent. You can't afford to be seen to be toying at it. Um, so that's that's probably the biggest question over it is is there the space in his life to, to do it justice? Didn't stop him dabbling in management half heartedly though, did it? Well, it's, oh, no, there exactly. we go. But we've I think, we've no, got Jamie Carragher's spokesman now. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, what are you two like? I think that's that is that is a really good lesson, though, isn't it? He took the you know there was uh, this the club owned by Peter Lim, and probably I think there was a shall we say blurring of common sense there that you know there's no way he could just swan in. He's, you know he didn't didn't speak the language, uh, taken it, it that was half cock completely, and and it blew up. So I think that is you know a, li- a life lesson in that you, sh- you can't take on too much. Yeah, it would be massively refreshing, wouldn't he, Gary Neville, the first politician who actually does support the club that they say they support and also knows something about football, you know? <laughs> he won't be messing up who he supports in press conferences, etc., etc. Uh, Matt, it's been fantastic to catch up. Uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon on The Game Podcast. Thank you for telling us all of that and good luck with it as well. Uh, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, thank you too for being with me and to all of you for listening. Remember, you can read more of our award-winning journalism at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. If you sign up today, you will get yourself one month three. We will see you on Thursday. Take care. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar double tap to open breakfast with anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day accessibility there's more to iphone planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.